Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk bad relationship advice using science. Science. (laughs) I am Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee College of Nursing and the Department of Psychology with a PhD in child and family studies. I'm Dr. Jacob Preetz from the University of Iowa Couple and Family Therapy Program, and I have a PhD in marriage and family therapy. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods in Dallas, Texas. I have a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and I'm an assistant professor and director of behavioral health in family medicine. Awesome. So this episode, we're going to talk about some current events in pop culture that we, I'm using air quotes here, want to vent a little bit about. And we're also going to break down an academic article titled, Friends, Relatives, Sanity, and Health, The Cost of Politics. Fresh off the dim debate, we thought that this would be a really good article for this episode. And last but not least, we're going to discuss some relationship advice that we actually received from some listeners. Thank you very, very much. And then some other advice we found or heard as well. But before we get to all of that, how's everybody doing? What's going on in your lives? I'm doing pretty well. I had a Halloween party last night where I, not last night, last weekend. Oh where my I God, you lost there. time. It was such a good party. You lost time. And then next weekend, we are going to the Galena, Illinois Halloween Extravaganza. What's that? Uh, it's the most amazing thing that you've never heard of. <laughs> yeah. so, so Galena, Illinois is this uh, little kind of really small town, but it's kind of a tourist town. Ulysses S. Grant was from there. He has his old of house course. there. Anyway, but they have this huge Halloween parade. Like, no kidding you. It's the second largest parade in Illinois behind Chicago St. Patrick's Day Parade. They have, like, they have, like, uh, floats where people will shoot, like, fire into the sky. Everybody is dressed up on the street. It is just a blast. We've done it the last three or four years in a row. We're going back. Oh, that's awesome. I, it yeah. makes me think and curious about what the second largest parade in Tennessee is. Mm. <laughs> Something you probably don't know. Don't. Probably. Probably. It seems like every week I get um, more signs that some Midwestern office of tourism is secretly funding Jacob to participate. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, I'm of- down for any advertiser. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I don't know. I just kind of like the Midwest. I'm glad. And no, yes, it sounds lovely. Yes, I will take sponsorships. You know, Pure Michigan, call me. Um, Florida? I, I don't, no, Florida is not in the Midwest. <laughs> Sorry, I was just thinking states. <laughs> You're right. You're right. That PhD paid off. Florida is yeah. not in the Midwest. <laughs> I've struggled with it on multiple episodes now. It's not. <laughs> Woods, what did, how was your uh, last couple of weeks? Uh, good. The weather has cooled down quite a bit here, which I actually find kind of sad. I really still have this feeling like I'm going to get back in the pool, but it's um, officially hit some 40s. And so I think oh. probably swimming is out. <laughs> so, uh, Woods, what would you say your ideal temperature is? Oh, I don't know, but probably like low 80s. I feel like I'm, I've been in the South long enough where it's pretty high now. Definitely higher than it would have been. 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yesterday was a bring your child to medical school day. That's not the official title, but it was um, a day where all the medical students got to, not all of them, some of them got to come through and see kids of different ages to like child development better. So I brought my five-year-old daughter and it was amazing. So (laughs) there were groups of like maybe five, seven med students and a faculty member, which I read right before I went in, all of the faculty were psychiatrists. So out the gate, I had to warn one of them to probably not analyze any further my daughter's (laughs) (laughs) 
because the person went like really Freudian, which was very interesting. And they asked her a lot of questions like, what's your favorite food? She told them steak. Uh, <laughs> did she say, did she say, say rare and then just locked eyes with them? <laughs> well, yeah, they tried to ask her other questions and I was like, no, no, she doesn't, the other food, she's not really, it's really just red meat. Uh, <laughs> she's really just in red meat. She's uh, really a Texas girl, huh? And I think that they, yes, very. They asked her a lot of questions that I think she thought they didn't know the answer to. So I was very glad they didn't know her because her answers were very judgy. Like, uh, yeah. And it, finally she got comfortable enough with the last group. Somebody asked her a question like, I don't know how to do division. Can you show me? Because that's what she said her favorite subject was. And she looks at this gentleman and says, uh, seriously? And I said, okay, we're about out of time. My daughter's true personality is coming out. But, uh, it was pretty amazing. I it love that so much. Would, you just, yeah. would you describe her as like a little bit pushy? I would. Uh, she's, uh, she's confident, and I really appreciate that about her. <laughs> we reframe that as confident here, Jacob. <laughs> So this weekend, I got to go to an amazing festival in line with the, the festival theme that we have going on here, um, Cider Fest in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, some of you may know, I fancy myself a cider maker. I've been trying to make hard apple cider for the past couple of years. Mind you, it is not good, but I'm getting there. So I saw that the cider fest was uh, happening. And so I drug my entire family and uh, my sister and her boyfriend up from Georgia to meet us there. And we spent the day sampling ciders. There were like 20 vendors there and they each had like two to four varieties of their cider. There was also some mead there, which I had never had before. Ooh. I got so day drunk. It was amazing. Took an Uber there, took one back. <laughs> like, and, the, and the weather was perfect. It was just spectacular. Did you learn any yeah. actual cider making skills? No. No. Oh, yep. Okay, cool. cool. Uh, towards the end, my husband <laughs> said, um, oh, I think this one might taste like yours. And I'm like, oh. And it was like free fermentation one. It was like the funkiest one they had. I'm oh. like, that's me. <laughs> the funkiest one you have. So my, my cider is going to be for a very refined palate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, well, let's get started. So for our first segment, our lives and relationships are impacted by things in our surroundings, whether that's locally, nationally, or culturally. So for this segment, we talk about, we take a moment to highlight current events in pop culture that may influence people's lives and how they view their relationships. Basically, this is I would say our guilty pleasure segment where we justify our love for everything pop culture. Jacob? So I'm going to talk today about my newest obsession on Ooh. television, which is HBO's Succession. Ooh. Have either of you seen it? No. Okay, so I there will be no spoilers in this because I'm actually a season behind. We just started watching season one and the season finale of season two just aired. Let me tell you a little bit about Succession. Tell us. Succession is all centered around the Roy family. Now, Logan Roy is the patriarch of the family and he has four kids. And he is somebody who grew up in poverty but built a huge media conglomerate that has you know, movie productions, news, all of that kind of stuff. And the whole idea around Succession, at least the first season I'm watching, centers around Logan has, he's like in 70 or 80, I would guess. He has a stroke, the patriarch of this family. And his oldest son, Kendall, decides that he wants to make a move to run the company. The problem with Kendall and most of the other kids except for his daughter is that because they've grown up in such a rich family, they're not really good at anything and they're just kind of terrible. Uh -huh. yep. What I think Succession does really well, it demonstrates a principle which I think is very important to understanding why people come to therapy, kind of a throwback of what we talked last week and ways to navigate certain developmental transitions. Okay. So it's kind of the idea of family developmental flexibility, right? So if we think about Logan Roy, 
he has had this role in his family where he is the authoritarian. He makes all the decisions. He decides who gets what. Everyone is dependent on him for their financial needs. And when he becomes incapacitated and the family tries to reshuffle, it ends up causing more problems. Logan Roy decides to go back to work probably when he shouldn't because he wants to still maintain that place of power in the family and doesn't want any one of his children to be able to, in some sense, grow up and take that from him. So the, the way I see this is similar to a lot of couples and families I see in therapy. Typically, people are coming to see me. And I don't know if this has been y'all's experience as well at certain developmental transition points where there is, you know, maybe kids are growing up into a certain age of being a teenager and there's a lot of tension and conflict around that reshuffling. Or when kids become adults, right? That shift from being a parent right. who, you know, is looking after kids, providing for kids to more so shifting into potentially a peer role or a supportive role. Right. And I've found that in my practice, and I think succession demonstrates this really well, that these developmental transition points, if there is not a lot of flexibility built into the family, can cause a lot of issues and problems. So you would define family role flexibility as basically the ability for members of that family to shift in and out of roles, not like sister and brother or mother roles, but roles as in like caretaker, supportive partner, leader, head of the family type of type of things. Yeah, right. So as a family goes throughout the life course, they're going to have these different developmental milestones, you know, right. young kid versus kids. And teens. Yeah. And then to like the more later adolescence, young adulthood. Mm -hmm. And then even more so like in the case of the Roy family, when parents age and kids become caretakers of parents right. in a lot of and at each of those developmental transition, if there's not the flexibility for family members to take on different roles, or if there's people who don't want to lose their status or place in a family, I think that's a lot of times where the conflict comes to a head in family. That makes so, a lot of sense. What do we do about that? Yeah. Right? Um, the Roy family, if you watch Succession, and I totally would recommend it. It is so good. It I'm, is, I, I, I'm obsessed with it right now. I think it is really important, if you can, talk openly about these upcoming developmental transitions. Right? So if yeah, you, it's really hard to do, right? Talking to your parents about transitioning to their child being a caregiver. Those are really hard conversations to have, but I agree with you. Yeah, I think it should be viewed as like a conversation. It should be viewed as kind of a developmental process too, where you can start saying, hey, you know, what do you want when, you know, you're 80 years old out of your life? How would you want that to look? And if you start that young enough, yeah, you know, and the same way is like when kids are transitioning into their own partnerships, about talking about like, how do you see this playing out? How can we be supportive of this? Because those renegotiation of boundaries around transitions can be really difficult. I don't think anybody does them perfectly, right? but navigating these more direct conversations around those transitions can help it be viewed more so as a transition than as a, like a betrayal of your family or you're yeah. pushing me out of your life or why are you trying to take care of me? I'm, I'm no longer a child. And that responsibility is on both sides, right? The responsibility of the child to recognize it and be willing to take on that, those responsibilities of caregiving for their parent, but also the parent recognizing that that transition is inevitable and will happen and having those conversations early and often, even though they might be uncomfortable. But yeah, so first of all, watch Succession on HBO. It Done. is really worth it. it this family, I, I mean, I'm talking to this about this in really broad overview because I don't want to spoil anything, but this family is really crazy. And if you want to see some crazy, crazy family dynamics uh, and make you feel a little bit better about your family, <laughs> watch Succession. It's, it's really good. Awesome. On the list. On to segment two, article deep dive. Woo -woo. Today we're going to talk about a very topical paper recently published in the Plus One journal we particularly really like because they have a lot of cool kind of fancy statistical stuff too, titled Friends, Relatives, Sanity, and Health, The Cost of Politics. 
That is a freaking great title, by the way. It really is. The study was done by doctors Kevin Smith, Matthew Hibbing, and John Hibbing. They're political scientists out of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and the University of California, Merced. As with every episode, the link to the article is available in the episode's description, and we'll also put it out on the tweeter. Um, some people call it Twitter, but I prefer to call it tweeter. It makes me sound really cool, so... I mean, you are really cool, so... <laughs> oh, Jacob. Um, anyway, a little bit about this um, article before Sarah takes off. Politics and political engagement comes with both costs and benefits. So engaging in politics, people can feel fulfilled by getting involved in the politics, uh, getting connected with other people who have things in common with them, feeling like they're supporting an important cause and engaging in an important civic duty. The cost of political engagement are less well understood, especially for health and relationships, the relationships both romantic and family. The two 2017 Stress in America survey by the American Psychological Association found that 57% of Americans said that the current political climate was a somewhat or very significant source of stress, and 66% said that they were similarly stressed by the future of our country. So a lot of stress in our country because of the political environment. So given that there's been little research into the specific effects of politics on friendships, family relationships, and health, the researchers in this article decided to try to better understand these costs of engaging in our current politics. So Sarah, what did they find and how did they do it? I'm so glad you asked. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Finally. So they used a pre-recruited online panel from YouGov, which is not a method I've seen done before. No, what is YouGov? Do you know what YouGov is? Uh, I mean, not before this article, I didn't. Right. Uh, so, which makes sense. I'm not a political scientist. I would guess that's probably a source of data for people doing this type of research. Okay. Um, but they, uh, they have an online panel of almost 2 million American Whoa. who they use to create representative samples. So their sample was specifically matched to um, a specific sampling frame on gender and age and race and uh, political affiliation and some of these different characteristics. And sampling frame is a term used by researchers that is you decide what characteristics you want your sample to be um, and and then you go after it. And those characteristics are just called a sampling frame. So that resulted in 800 participants in the study. So that 800 American adults that were representative of all adults in the United States. And they were surveyed over five days in March 2017. So this is not a longitudinal study. This is not long-term data. This is all within five days wow. using 32 questions that asked about physical health, emotional health, a collection of things that we'll talk about that they call regretted behavior. So this mm -hmm. is ways that you engage in politics that you later feel bad about um, or even know ahead of time that probably you shouldn't engage in politics and then you do anyways and it doesn't feel so great. Okay. Um, and then the fourth, the fourth area being social and lifestyle costs, which given the focus of attached is really where we're going to especially try to highlight today. So they also asked about other pieces, personality traits, political attitudes, political knowledge and interests, political activity, to try to gauge at the individual level how engaged are these people in politics to see how connected it would be to these other potential costs. So what they found was that not too unlike the APA stress survey that you just talked about, Patricia, 40% of their, almost 40% of their participants reported experiencing stress as a result of politics, meaning they agreed or strongly agreed with a statement that said that politics was causing them stress. So that okay. is a lot of people. And that's just where they start because it, there were a lot of numbers in here that I found really kind of surprising. So specific to physical health, they found that over 20% reported fatigue because of politics. Wow. More than Yeah. More than 10% reported politics affected their physical health, even if only a little bit. Almost a third of their sample reported losing their temper. Uh, and then mm. one of the pieces I, I found personally most shocking was that more than one in four reported they agreed with a statement 
politics has led me to hate some people. Wow. Yeah, I know. Most relevant, I think, to attached in the our listeners specific to relationships was that yeah. one one in five said that differences in political views damaged a friendship they valued. Wow. And almost as many said differences in political views created problems for me and my extended family and made and separately made home life less pleasant. Wow. This is particularly well, it's a little bit personally triggering for me, but it's also making me think about all of this research that's come out recently about this loneliness epidemic that we have in our country. Uh, we could talk about yeah. that later, but that's just something that it, this is making me think about that people are potentially withdrawing when we already have a loneliness epidemic in the country. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that would be uh, make sense too in terms of thinking about how divisive this is that if mm-hmm. um, it's affecting the relationships that are closest to us, it would be really problematic. And then in the category of relationships, the last thing I want to share that was that almost 15% of their participants said that differing political views created problems for them and their immediate family. So it was affecting friendships, immediate family, extended family, really kind of, uh, home life specifically, really very problematic and not for just a few people. Um, a lot of participants reported that behavior related to political engagement, as I was saying earlier, was behavior they regretted, meaning almost 17%, for example, reported their life would be better if they didn't focus so much on politics, wow. which means some indication that people know that they maybe shouldn't pay so much attention or shouldn't be so engaged, but are anyways. Because another uh, almost one in four said that they spend more time thinking about politics than they would like, which doesn't necessarily mean they have the they feel like they have the option to to disengage, but just that it's more on their mind than they would really prefer to be the case. The researchers then took those individual traits that I talked about earlier and looked to see if those individual traits were associated with any of these different health or relationship costs. They found that um, age was, I'm going to use the word protective, although this was really assessed at the same time. So it's not to say that older people experience benefits of age over time, but just to say that older adults reported fewer costs. Male gender was significantly associated with more perceived costs of politics as was being unemployed. And then some other characteristics in terms of personality they found that participants who are more disagreeable and critical and those who are also less emotionally stable or more anxious, easily upset, were more likely to think politics was negatively affecting them, as were people who reported seeing people who were their political opposite as uninformed and closed-minded, which you can imagine would be problematic for yeah. your relationships. That's true. <laughs> that one felt like a really uh, a really easy gimme. Um and then overall, another another piece that they shared multiple times was that participants who were more engaged, so who were saying that they were talking about politics more frequently and who were participating more, perceived greater costs. So they were participating more despite the greater costs. Is that uh, what how you perceive that? So I think it was it's just an association, meaning right. that for people who said they the more that they participated in politics, the more likely they were to also say that they had greater costs as a result of politics. Politics. Okay, I understand. So I think the aging one is interesting, reporting fewer costs, because we also know that older adults who remain married tend to have higher relationship satisfaction. Um, they also tend to be less reactive than, than younger adults. And there's a lot of research suggesting, or maybe a lot of theories suggesting they're not sure if age is necessarily a causal link or if it's a selection effect. So older adults may be um, less reactive, maybe they perceive fewer costs or they have more stable relationships because they're the ones who have survived that far into old age, right? So people who are more reactive tend to have more stress reactivity, who are more volatile, have a, a, a shorter, perhaps have a shorter life expectancy. So I wonder if that selection versus causal effect is a reflection of what we're seeing here. Yeah, the last the last thing that they also made clear was that ideology and partisanship was 
associated to such that people who identified as more liberal or identified as Democrats um, who are disapproving of the current administration reported worse costs of engaging in politics. But what's not clear is whether this phenomenon is unique to this current political climate, meaning there's no, there, the researchers conducted the study because there isn't really good data on how politics affects our health and relationships from prior administrations. So we don't know if this is just something felt by people for whom their current party is not in power right. or if this is, um, we also don't know the cause and effect. It's not longitudinal. So we don't know technically whether political engagement is causing these issues. It's just that participants were reporting that they thought that that was the case, which is important. It is very, I mean, it's really super important. I think if 20% of their participants, of 20% of 800 people were saying that differences in political views damage a friendship, um, I think that's really important whether or not they determined a causal effect over time. That's That's a really powerful thing to believe to be true and what we would want to attend to and pay attention to if somebody was telling us that. So I think though it's not clear whether these findings are true just of the current political climate or whether they've maybe been true of the last several administrations and we don't know, it is clear that many Americans perceive their family relationships and their friendships are being negatively impacted by politics. When I was reading this article, do you know what and uh, again, this is me tying this back to pop culture. But were you all, uh, did you all hear the the discussion or the articles or the Twitterverse around Ellen DeGeneres and George W. Bush? Oh, interesting. Right. So um, for those of you who didn't see it, Ellen, who has been an advocate for LGBTQ rights um, and marriage equality, went to the Dallas Cowboys football game with her wife, Portia. And uh, while they were there, they were sitting next to George and Laura Bush. If, um, if you remember anything about the Bush administration when it came to LGBTQ equality, George Bush and his administration was not supportive and some say actively worked against yes. providing e- e- equality to LGBTQ individuals. So a lot of backlash ensued. And so Ellen on her television program, got up and said, hey, go ahead. I think a lot of the backlash was partially because of that. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) She made the argument that when, you know, every day she ends her show with um, the importance of of being kind to one another. And this is something I thought about a lot. And I think that there's some value in kindness when kindness is also about holding people accountable, right? Like I think that- I like um, where you're going with this. Yeah, I think that um, when we can hold people accountable and still maintain their sense of dignity, that's where real kindness is. And so wherever you are on the political spectrum, yes. I think that it's become very difficult to engage in these types of conversations. It's become very reactive. As you were talking about, this reactivity can lead to costs of relationships and health. And I and feel I think also of- I am perfectly demonstrating the reactivity. Yeah. I'm feeling yeah. very reactive right now to this conversation. So I'm demonstrating <laughs> this in real time. You're welcome for yeah. illustrating your point. One and in so three I... of these podcasters did not make it through this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think that it is a hard line to walk and that you're probably, when you're talking to your friends and family, not going to do it perfectly. But I think, and as we'll talk about later on in this episode, the importance of listening, but still um, holding people accountable and being able to be uh, to disagree without uh, resulting to anger, hatred, especially of family members. And so it can be different for politicians and policies. But I think when it comes to our close family relationships, this type of kindness where you are open and hearing and listening, but at the same time, willing to hold people accountable for those views is what makes 
I think for polit- better political discourse and also more, more prob- potentially deeper relationships. Uh, it can be hard to talk across politics, but I think when people can do it successfully, they can have better conversations. I, I agree with you. And reflecting that on this research, I think also it potentially could improve your quality of life and improve your health because this research is saying that the stress of politics is negatively impacting our relationships and our health. So being able to effectively figure out how to have these conversations, if you have to have them with family and and friends, can also improve overall our quality of life. Yeah, I, I wish think- our listeners could see Sarah's face right now because I don't know if she, what she's going to say, but I don't think she agrees with us. Oh, do it. I love it. <laughs> uh, that Yeah, that's not exactly my takeaway from reading this article, meaning I, I do think there is an important take home about if you feel like the current political climate and maybe watching the news and reading about politics or talking about politics is affecting your relationships, you're definitely not alone. And if that's the case and it's happening so often, I think the takeaway for me is probably not a conversation we need to be necessarily having with our friends and family, meaning they also have a finding here that if you are an emotionally vulnerable person who is more anxious and easily upset, you are going to feel potentially more cost of talking about politics. If you find yourself talking about politics in ways that you regret, you're going to explain, you're going to experience more costs of engaging in politics. Um, People in this sample talked about that they'd posted or written things online that they later wished they hadn't, that they vowed to spend less time in politics, but they failed to follow through. This is not just a few people. This is like 15, 20% of this sample. And probably there are people listening who can say, yep, I've totally done that. I've had to um, block friends or unfollow family or not bring it up or or feared visiting home. And so I think there is research to suggest that, not in this paper, different research, to suggest that when you approach a conversation about polar opposite views and you are very different from the person who you are talking with, it is unlikely you're going to change their mind. Right. And so if there are these perceived costs to a decent number of relationships and you think that that person you are talking to may be that person, I'm not certain what the purpose would be of engaging in that conversation Mm. because it probably means that there are other skills that you have to develop in that relationship to be able to have it or just skip it entirely if you're able to. And maybe that makes the assumption that you're able to step away from it. But um, I think probably a lot of people make an assumption that they're going into it level-headed and they can have that conversation, but evidence here doesn't seem to suggest we go about those conversations Mm. in a way that's disengaged or dispassionate or without the belief that I secretly can convince this person that I really, really love and otherwise I'm on the same page with to think differently. Okay. So the idea is that you are likely unable to convince them. So unless you are a thousand percent confident in both your communication skills and the other person's communication skills, maybe it's better to talk about another topic, maybe something pop culture-y. Which is not easy to do when we're saying two-thirds of the country is stressed about the future of our nation. Right. It potentially outlaws a bunch of topics with the people that you otherwise feel very close to. But there are, I think, I think it's safe to assume engaging those conversations may cost you a relationship. And you may decide in the long run that that's a relationship that was worth costing you to discover that you felt so differently. But being informed about that, I don't, I, I just don't think people should feel alone if it is affecting their relationships. Right. Yeah. So I, I have mixed feelings about that, Sarah, because I, on the one hand, I do see that. I do see you know, the results of this study in particular that, show, that say how stressed we are about the political discourse and how um, it can affect our health and our relationships, which isn't great. 
And at the same time, I worry about avoiding these types of conversations because I don't think the conversation should be about convincing. Sure. You know, like like what when you go into, I think if you're going into a political discussion and trying to convince your uncle, I think about this because whenever I see my uncle, we have very disparate political views, but we have the type of relationship and the respect for one another that it's not about, hey, you're a bad person if you think this. It's more about, I want to talk about this topic to understand where you're coming from on it. Totally different. And I think, when, yeah, I think that is a different type of conversation. And that's the type of conversations I yep. think are healthy to engage in. But yes. if, you, if you're right, if you're sitting there with somebody who is, you're trying to have a conversation and they bring up and are name calling, disrespectful, right. um, are shutting down or being abusive or in any of those regards, no, don't have that conversation with that person. But yeah. there probably are people that have different views than you do and speaking to them and listening to them and okay. hearing them. I, I think those types of conversations can be healthy. But I think I, you're right and that clarification of if you enter into the conversation trying to convince or if somebody is name calling or any of those things, it just shuts down the political discourse yeah, and hurts relationships. I, I definitely agree with you. I think the purpose of the discussion really matters. And what these researchers highlighted was that there was a lot of variation in the purpose of the behaviors in engaging in those discussions. And some of them, when they were problematic, were really problematic. I would, I would definitely agree with you. Yeah, I know. I have friends who are no longer friends because of politics. I have, you know, I've had, uh, you know, there's been people who have talked about getting divorced because of how they voted in elections. And so these things can have really high stakes and uh, it's hard to navigate in in relationships but there's still some couples despite their political differences who persist kellyanne and george <laughs> that's true i actually think if you can find ways in close relationships to respect and appreciate difference i mean in politics or whatever i think it can actually serve as a way to enhance your relationship because you maintain a potentially a greater sense of autonomy even though it's hard to get to that place. It's really it's hard to get to that very, place. It's very, very hard to get to that place, yes. And no couple does it perfectly, but trying and, and persisting, I think, is a good goal. Awesome. Wow. That was a very, very great article. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing it with us. Now it's time for our final segment, Good or Bad Advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice about friends, families, and romantic partners. Did your grandparents have a saying about love or marriage? Did your parents give you advice about friendships or romantic relationships? Did you have a friend or romantic partner who said something about love and family that was kind of odd to you? Or maybe it struck you as poignant. This is the section of the show where we talk about advice and decide if it was good or bad. As always, if you... you really we need to invest in sound effects for that, like a recording of a lot of people. Good or bad. And also science. Uh, but I like that we make our own sound effects. Low budge. As low always. Budget. If, low budget. As always, if you until, have... Low budget until that Midwestern Office of Tourism contacts, Jacob. <laughs> and then we'll be all set. I feel like I could do you a mean good... Florida? Yeah, a good pure Michigan. You like get my best voice, like rolling hills, green trees, and beautiful lakes. This is pure Michigan. I think you have to do like an octave lower, Jacob. I want to do it. Can you do it lower? I also want the money. So, I mean, if they'll pay you, I mean, I'm fine with it. I'll take the money. As always, getting back on script here, if you've heard or read some advice you want us to talk about, send it to us. You can leave us a message at 865-229-6775, email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at attachedpodcast. You can also visit our website. I don't know if you guys have been there or not. Um, attachedpodcast.com. And while you're in your whatever app you're in listening to this lovely podcast, go ahead and like and subscribe. 
And also, we would love if you left a comment because we love to read them. And you never know, you might, your comment might end up on our social needs. Just made that up. Our social <laughs> needs? <laughs> yeah, why not? So today we're going to talk about a, a couple of pieces of advice. The first um, set of advice comes from uh, an article about politics and family. The article is titled, Seven Ways to Prevent Political Arguments with Family and Friends. And this is from Money Crushers by Michael Lewis. So I'm going to, I pulled a couple, uh, I cherry picked a couple that I would love for you guys to tell us what you think about the advice, um, especially given the research that we just talked about. So first, bit of advice. Recognize the importance of your relationships. Humans often go to extraordinary lengths to protect their physical and financial property while ignoring their most valuable assets, family and friends. Close relationships are critical to health and happiness throughout our lives. Good or bad advice? What do you guys think? I mean, I think it's pretty good advice. <laughs> we do a whole, a whole podcast on the importance of your relationships to your health and well-being and everything else. Uh, so I'm going to say, way to go, Michael. Way to, <laughs> way, way to, way to put most, that advice. Yeah, not the most controversial piece of advice you've selected for the third segment. <laughs> also agree. Good advice. Cool. We're practicing, we're demonstrating how to agree with each other. <laughs> all right, the next bit of advice. Recognize that we all experience the world differently. Before demonizing those who disagree with you politically, consider that they are influenced by factors beyond their control, as are you. While humans are physically and psychologically similar, they are not identical. As a consequence, each of us experience and respond to our environments in unique manners. Understanding the basis for another person's opinion is the first step to reconciliation. So what do you guys think? Good or bad advice? I think it's good advice. Whenever we want to have difficult conversations, I think it's really important to recognize the context in which uh, the person you are in a relationship with, that you love, that you're friends with, um, is coming from. And by understanding and recognizing that context, uh, I think you can have more meaningful discussion. Good advice from Jacob. Uh, I agree. Good advice. I think like we just talked about in that uh, academic deep dive segment, people who demonize their political opposites also report a lot of physical and emotional and social costs yeah. of politics. So I think it's probably much more helpful to consider that people see the world differently and to explore and understand differences from a place of curiosity. All around good advice. Next, have a realistic expectation for family relationships. Few people have families like the make-believe families of fiction and TV. Fathers don't always know best. Mothers get frazzled or tired. And children are often selfish brats. And we wish they behaved as angels. <laughs> Sorry, that's just like... <laughs> Good or bad advice, uh, y'all. What I year think it is... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's good to have uh, realistic expectations for family members. I think we talk about that all the time on this podcast, especially when it comes to um, valuing and putting effort into relationships beyond your partnership, mm -hmm. even though your partnership, your romantic relationship is important. But I don't know if I like how uh, Michael has written about this in that section. <laughs> So good advice, but not explained ideally. That's what I would say. Sarah? Uh, good advice. I think it's probably also important to share your expectations for family relationships. Mm. That my expectations of my siblings, my parents, my partner, et cetera, may not be clear. I've talked about this with a lot of patients lately, so this is kind of just on my mind, this idea that your assumption that they know what you are thinking and feeling and how you all want to interact is not necessarily accurate. They may not know what you need from them. What would it look like to be able to communicate that more clearly so that they understand your expectations and they can share theirs as well? Uh, that's good advice from Dr. Woods right there. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Woods. That's um, some free advice. <laughs> <laughs> 
Unless Bonus. you want to send a check in, we're happy to, to receive it. I'll take all checks payable. Only, we're only taking checks from the state of Florida. But if the state of Florida is listening, I'm in. Apparently also Michigan, too. You forgot that entire state. Uh, I don't know what that is. That was weird. <laughs> I don't think we should take that weird creepy water money. I don't know what's happening. Oh, my God. Great advice about politics. We really, really like, for the most part, the article by Michael Lewis. Thank you very much. So now I'm going to move into some advice that some listeners sent in. So this was advice a listener told me about, and here it is. Every relationship has a flower and a gardener. So I had never really heard this before, so I went to the internet and and looked it up, and I found an article from mamamia.com. It's an Australian place. And this is what the article Jesse Stevens says about flowers and gardeners. And we'll post this also. The theory goes that in order for a relationship to work, it needs a flower and a gardener. The flower needs to be nurtured and tended to and requires plenty of adoration and attention in order to flourish The gardener, on the other hand, is far more adaptive and sees its primary role as caring for the flower. They water the flower with love and are more inclined to put in the work required to maintain a long-term relationship. They are often perfectionists and have a great attention to detail. The gardener likes things to be organized and straightforward whereas the flower is more spontaneous. When the flower becomes a little out of control, the gardener possesses the ability to prune it gently. Good or bad advice? Holy shit, this is bad advice. (laughs) Go on. Yeah. Uh, I don't know your reaction to this, Sarah, but... uh, I'm going to be super surprised if Sarah's like, this is excellent advice. I think that this is just such not a view of healthy relationships at all. It seems to me that this is more like describing a parent and a child as opposed to Yeah, like this, that one person has the responsibility to care, take care of this other person that is basically just emotionally reactive and not okay to take care of their own emotions. What this reminds me of in the therapy business is an over-functioning, under-functioning type of relationship where one person is in a role where they do all the work to take care of it and the other person is a role where they, do, they don't do those things. And those types of relationships are not healthy. And if we even want to frame this in attachment theory terms, like this is not a securely attached relationship. This reminds me of an anxious, avoidant attached relationship in that one person is needing to be taken care of. And then the other person either has to take care of that person or is eventually over time, it's just going to push away from that person. So don't ever believe that there needs to be a flower and a gardener in a relationship. Jesse Stevens. Jesse Stevens, please find a good couples therapist. (laughs) And just a reminder that a listener asks this question, so we want to be gentle in how we respond. It's not just this person, but somebody had gotten this advice. Um, As you were talking, I also thought, damn, I just want to be a flower once in a while. I'm so tired. (laughs) And then I also thought about, oh man, I'm the worst gardener. I kill all of my flowers. Um, So yeah, I mean, I agree with Jacob and also uh, no one should allow me to be a gardener in a relationship. My partner would end up dried up and dead. (laughs) Yeah, not good advice. No go. So we all concur, not good advice. Not good. So last but not least, this was advice I received in workout class. At the end of workout class, my people, the instructor always says something motivational. And this one instructor in particular, I just love her. She always says amazing things. This is what she said at the end of Monday's class. Say no. No is a complete sentence. Set your boundaries. Protect yourself. And I was just like, oh, my God. But you know what this reminded me of? Uh Uh-oh. Good or bad advice. (laughs) I'll get there. It (laughs) reminded me of not being enmeshed. It reminded me of differentiation. And I was wondering, Jacob, 
what you thought about that and Sarah what you thought about that and maybe one of you guys could explain differentiation and then say if this is good or bad advice through that lens um, I will explain differentiation of self a concept so named by Murray Bowen in his family systems theory and the idea of differentiation of self is that in relationships there are these two impulses the need to connect and the need to remain separate and our ability to monitor to balance those two impulses is called differentiation of self so i am going to say if if our listeners could see the two other faces in our zoom meeting right now sarah and patricia are dying and they will explain why in a little bit but i will tell you why i think this is okay advice i'm not saying it's great i'm not saying it's bad i think it depends as michael lewis was talking about earlier on the context right in the some instances <laughs> the brilliant michael lewis i think in some instances saying no and being able to stick to that no is really important i also think that no sometimes can be used to um not engage in important conversations with an important mm, loved one. Interesting. Right? right. So, you know, like if, um, if you were just to go in and, Hey, I need some help with dinner tonight. Can you help me? No. Well, why not? No is a complete sentence and I'm setting my boundaries. I don't think that's very healthy, but I do think that there, if there are people that push your boundaries, saying no to them and establishing that cutoff, is important and helpful. Mm -hmm. Sarah, so you think it's I, medium advice. Sarah, good or medium. bad advice? I mean, did he really sit on the fence right there? He sure did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what I, what I feel like I heard him say was it's good advice so long as it's not taken to an extreme. And I don't disagree. I was laughing very hard because this feels like a real setup. Patricia knows that this is a real soapbox issue for Jacob and something that I get tired of hearing about. And so <laughs> next episode, I hope to also receive a piece of advice that is a soapbox for me so I get a platform. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. Good advice so long as it's not taken to an extreme where – your entire way of operating is solely about self-protection and holding other people at arm's length um, because then you're limiting your ability to connect with other people. <laughs> um, absolutely. I agree. And just for the record, I was really hoping that Sarah would say that this isn't differentiation theory. It's another theory. But I uh, definitely threw you guys both in the water intentionally, so I apologize. But I will say in the moment – that one part, no is a complete sentence, for me was very powerful because it's not something that particularly women, I think, are told a whole lot. We oftentimes, when we say no, we're expected to give an explanation as to why we're saying no. But the fact that no is a complete sentence was in the moment very powerful to me. And so I wanted to share that with other people if that happened to be powerful for them as well. It's not necessarily always advice about relationships, but it certainly can be. Agreed. So on that note, hey, thanks for listening to Attached, folks. Remember to call us, email us, or tweet about any relationship advice you've received or you're wondering about or you want us to talk about. We would love to talk about it. We can't wait. See you guys next time.